1: The 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 the
0: the the Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by the esteemed Ken Katkin, a professor of law at Chase Law School in Northern Kentucky. Welcome back to the Politics Guys, Ken. Thanks, Trey. Good to be back. Yeah, I mean, the last few times we've, we've done this, we've basically been invaded by uh, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Right. Now, so, now we're going back to, basics. back to basics this time. Exactly. It's, Cla- it's going to be classic, yeah. I think, is how Mike was going to put it. It wasn't, uh, <laughs> wasn't going to come bomb. No, I actually enjoyed doing the, the, the three-person show, but I, I do enjoy what we do. And especially this this week, because there's a few different items, I think, you know, we always agree a lot, right? We, we have disagreements maybe, I think, around the margins sometimes, uh, which I think is one of the benefits of the show. But I think we might have some, some real disagreement. We'll see if we can, you know, hang up with each other or something. Make it like Fox News and we'll just yell. That's right. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> well, I guess we can't make it exactly like Fox, Fox News because we aren't that attractive. Uh <laughs>
1: I've got Um, got the face for radio. Yeah,
0: exactly. I mean, no one has ever said Trey. Let's get you on TV. Uh, But (laughs) the big, the the big story, though, or one of the big stories, uh, outside, of course, of uh, the ongoing COVID, was Bernie Sanders. Right. So Bernie Sanders, he suspended his campaign this week, uh, and as we might imagine in the in the Twitterverse, we basically have both the hand ringing on one side of the Democratic Party. Uh, And the celebrations on the other side of the party. And there really seems to be kind of two big major views why uh, early on. On the one hand, we have kind of Vox's uh, take arguing that the Sanders campaign, it bet on young voters and it bet on the idea of class theories of politics. and And that was just fundamentally a mistake. And this is a blow to both of those things. That This is this kind of failed Marxism redo uh, and, uh, and, and an undue uh, amount of optimism that young voters will turn out. In other words, they're going to buck historic uh, trends. You know, as political scientists, we see age is, is correlated with turnout, uh, and a lot thought that that might go differently. And one view is to say, look, that, that's just a failing strategy. It was a failing strategy. It continues to be a failing strategy. On the other side, there's this interesting piece from the Washington Post arguing that really the Bernie Sanders campaign lost today, but really it lost the battle, not the war, that the agenda uh, of these young voters is going to change. It's just not now. And the argument here really seems to be that that the Democratic Party is undergoing a fundamental shift. Because younger voters are not going to follow the trends of their parents or their parents' parents. They're not going to be the baby boomer trend and become more conservative over time. Instead, things like climate change and class disparity, uh, which uh, some is arguing is the fundamental problem is facts, the thing that is attracting voters. And they're going to continue to be on this. And as, as things get worse with joblessness over class, and maybe even as a result of the pandemic crisis, it secures the future for the next Bernie Sanders, and so you know, since this is kind of your party, I'm curious, uh, Ken, do you have a side in this debate? And I mean, do you think that do you think it, there's a long term mattering here? And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, yes, Sanders. I think has been extremely successful. Uh, in fact, I think when he first got into the race uh, four four years ago against Hillary Clinton, um, I, I really doubt that at that time he thought that he could be the nominee. It seems completely quixotic to think that he's going to defeat Hillary Clinton. But I think the 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 reason he got in was to try to influence the the agenda of the Democratic Party and the issues that people are talking about in a presidential campaign. And if that was his goal. Um, I think he can claim victory. Um, I think he did, in fact, move Hillary Clinton quite a ways to the left of where she would have been four years ago. And there's uh, significant evidence that he's already succeeding in doing that with Biden. In fact, I think Biden, you know, today and yesterday started announcing uh, parts of Bernie's agenda, particularly with respect to uh, free public education for families um, with household income up to 125 grand and uh, um, a lot of student debt forgiveness, things like that that had been explicitly part of um, Bernie's platform and not Biden's, um, have, have become part of Biden's. So I, I think he has had quite a lot of influence. And I, and I think he is keeping his name on ballots. He is, uh, although he's not campaigning, he's planning to take his delegates to the convention, as many of them as he can. And I think that is for the purpose of um, influencing the platform. And I think he'll be successful at it. So, so I, I think he's achieved a lot of what he set out to ch-
0: achieve. So, I mean, but, but at the same so do you think then that the idea that the Democratic Party, and I don't mean this as a slur, right? Uh, do you think that this means the Democratic Party is ready for Democratic Socialism, or do you think this is an aberration?
1: No, I think it's neither. I don't think the party is there today. So when you say ready for it, I mean, obviously they chose Biden, they didn't choose Sanders. But I think in terms of a direction, um, yeah, I think, I think things are moving in the direction towards where Sanders is. Um, and, and so I, I think it is a party that is, it's a huge ship and it moves very slowly, but I think it's moving very slowly towards the left not towards the center or the right. And I, and I, I think that is because of the influence of, of Sanders. It may, it may get to where Sanders is now, but I don't think that'll happen in, in four years or eight years, you know, but maybe maybe, maybe 16 or 20 years from now, the, the mainstream of the Democratic Party will be about where Sanders is right now. That's, that's what I would think.
0: So convince me that uh, young voters today who may have um, Democratic Socialist Blood, right, who are Bernie Sanders supporters through and through, are going to still be there in 10, 15, or twenty years. It seems to be historically the experience that those kinds of voters they shift gears right uh, as they become a bit more involved in markets, they become less radicalized because markets are generally highly successful, and that the idea that you know they're going to implode, which is kind of at, at the heart of the the class argument seems to kind of continually fail. So why then would this particular generation buck the historic trend uh, as as voters become older and more likely to be involved in communities and in markets um, significantly uh, less liberal?
1: Yeah, I guess I see the historic trends as being a little more cyclic um, than how you're seeing them. So you see it as sort of linear that... Um, people tend to start off liberal when they're young and get more conservative as they get older. Um, And I would certainly agree that's how it looks right now in the year 2020. Um, But, uh, you know, we have had um, times when the electorate as a whole swung much further to the left. Of course, that happened You know, during FDR's administration and maybe again during LBJ's administration. Uh, maybe even again, um, the coalition that elected Obama thought of themselves as swinging uh, much more towards the liberal side of the pendulum. If you back it up a century, the, the coalition that elected Abraham Lincoln saw themselves as swinging much more t- toward the liberal side of the pendulum, I think. So I, I think these things are cyclic. And I do think that um, the world that younger people um, are facing Is uh, it's going to reinforce the liberal tendencies that they might have? So when you talk about, you know, in the past, you know, as people got older, they got a job, they got a career, they started making more money, they bought a home, they became a lot more concerned about um, a government that would try to sort of preserve a lot of stability and and not make big changes, not shake things up. Um, I don't know that the today's generation is going to get that experience. I think they're going to be facing a lot more uh, of the gig economy. The, the, you know, the, the kind of careers that most people were able to get in past generations, I think you're going to see smaller and smaller numbers of people being able to get into careers where they have steady, good paying jobs and a prospect of advancement. Um, I think the the system for healthcare care already, um, I think we're up to the point right now where majorities are looking for um, government to provide universal health care. And that's a that's a shift in that direction since, you know, when Obama actually tried to do that. That, that was politically somewhat risky and bordering on unpopular, but I think um, the Obamacare itself has become a lot more mainstream now, and now the uh, the left position is to go towards government single payer. So I think some of these kinds of um, some, some, the, the, the more the world doesn't really provide um, The more markets don't provide the kind of security that they used The market capitalism doesn't provide the kind of security that used to provide and that uh, income inequality gets um, more dramatically increased, you know, I I think that's going to lead to um, attitudes that stay more to the left. And I I, I guess I would use the comparison of the Great Depression and say that was the kind of circumstances that led large numbers to support um, Roosevelt, whose agenda was actually more, I would say, more liberal than, Sanders's.
0: No, I can't disagree with you on on Roosevelt or his or FDR's push and where that would be on a liberal conservative perspective. Uh, But a couple of historic cases that come to mind, you know, one, for example, is, is the idea that uh, in the United Kingdom, after you have the big push, obviously much earlier, historically speaking, for uh, universal health care, government health care, that ends up not leading to a, a great time for liberals, but rather you have some of the The staunch uh, portion of the conservatives' uh, victory in the United Kingdom, Um, but yeah, I mean, to your to your broader point about the uh, cyclical nature of it, and to um, as you were kind of saying there at the end, the uh, I don't disagree that it's not totally linear, uh, but I think that the underlying assumption that things that like wealth inequality. Will be the primary. I think that's the story of a, of a classism that doesn't exactly exist. I don't think it's the amount of dispari- disparity you have that will indicate the likelihood that you're going to have people want to swing further to the left or want to be less stable. I think it's more likely to be the question of is the, is the amount of money that individuals have on average increasing and or buying the things that make them happy? Uh, I I think sometimes that the the, the left makes a mistake at looking at income equality and assuming that that's going to be the outcome. I just don't think that's always a great measure. You know, we've never actually talked about that. What do do you think about that, Ken?
1: No, I, I, think, um, I, don't think, I think the opposite of what you think, actually. I think that uh, if you look at the places where liberal politics are the most viable, um, New York, California, places like that, you're looking at the places that have the most income inequality. And if you look, on the other hand, at places where everybody's poor you know, Mississippi, Arkansas, places like that, you're looking at places where everybody's poor and they're conservative. Um, and so I, I think that that the, what you would be predicting is that if people were poor, they'd be more liberal, and if they were more middle class, they'd be more conservative. Um, but I, I don't think that's borne out if you actually look at the map of the United States. I, I think the map of the United States shows The the New York and California are wealthy states, and they have a lot of wealthy people, and they have a lot of middle class and upper middle class people. Um, But they have a a, a very liberal politics, and I I do think that is because what they have is a lot of inequality.
0: So you think that inequality is in fact the predictor at a local level of whether or not you're going to tend towards the left. But I mean, even you're pointing to New York, but even in the case of New York, I mean that's the city of uh, Rudy Giuliani and the city of uh, you know some pretty uh, strict police policies that even some conservatives would have found relatively conservative.
1: Yeah, but that was a different time. I mean, actually, you didn't have that kind of inequality to the same extent then. The city was much poorer then um, all around, um, and the, you know the crime rates were very high. Um, the real estate values are very low. The city had almost um, before Giuliani became mayor, the city had actually been on the verge of declaring bankruptcy. Um, so I, I think I think that matches more like what I'm saying about places like Mississippi and Arkansas, where everybody's poor. Um, uh, I don't think you, the politics is liberal. I think that's a little more what New York was like uh, in the in the early 80s. And I, I lived then. And uh, it was a, it was a city where. Um, there was much more poverty than wealth in those days. Also, I think Giuliani, um, he really came in on the crime rates. And I, I think if, if, uh, if crime hadn't been so bad in New York in the 70s and 80s, then I don't think the rest of Giuliani's politics would have got him elected. But I think that the thing that got him elected was that crime was completely out of control. And when he came in as a kind of law and order candidate, that issue dwarfed um, all these other issues that we're talking about.
0: It's true. It's a unique time. Have you ever read the book "Setting the Agenda," uh, which ta- it, what it sets up? It, it looks at um, the correlation between the way people vote and the information about crime they're getting. Because what they're tra- what, they, what, what the uh, author correlates in that book. It's a political scientist uh, focused tome, uh, looking and, and showing that stories about crime are a better predictor than actual crime on people's voting when it comes to uh, police policies and um, uh, favoring security I't I, have you I was thinking about that as yeah. you were talking no, I about
1: I, I don't know the book and I, I believe it a lot I, believe, I think in the New York 70s in the 70s and 80s in New York both were true there was really a lot of crime and there were a lot of stories
0: about crime it's so true. I, I think both so what's, what's interesting yeah, yeah. this is what the book kind of chronicles uh, for listeners and this might be something you might want to uh, look at is so uh, you're right. So in the 70s, 80 crime is in fact very high, but the amount of stories about crime are were not as high as they were as you got into the uh into the nineties and into the aughts, ironically. So the amount of that went around. So the the correlation appeared to follow that increase. So as crime in New York City declined and around the country declined, uh people's concern about crime increased. and actually correlated with uh stories about it. Well, I think we got, probably got a little bit off the topic there, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sanders and, uh, and uh, dropping out of the race. And I do want to kind of have one last uh, question and thought for you on this. And that is, as, as is going to be expected, uh, President Trump has already been kind of blaming the Sanders uh, outser on the fact that Elizabeth Warren didn't get out quick enough. I think in large part to really be taking a shot at Elizabeth Warren more than anything else. Uh, and set up Biden as just kind of being a um a limp noodle, which is the narrative that he clearly wants to put forward. it's sleepy joe um, but kind of putting aside the uh partisanship side of that battle uh, do you think that in a different in a different setting that Sanders could have come closer uh to Biden or as we were kind of talking about earlier to to hit that again, do you think this in your view, are we just not at the at the tipping point for the social d- d- democrat?
1: Right. Well, first, I'll have to um you know confess a, a, a bad prediction I made here in response to that question. You'll remember I predicted that Sanders would be the uh, so. Well, he'd slowly um, kind of so fade I, I was, away.
0: Yeah. Well, not Sanders, but Biden would kind of slowly yep. fade. Yeah.
1: Right. Right. And I also was kind of looking at the model of how Trump became the, the Republican nominee in sixteen, and it seemed like. Um, Trump never really had more than 30 percent support in the Republicans, but it's just that all the other Republicans stayed in and they all kept splitting the vote on each other. And uh, I thought that Sanders had that kind of possible walk to victory, that he could keep 30 to maybe 35 percent of the Democrats on his side, never get above that. But that none of the others were even going to get that high because they were all splitting the vote on each other. And so my prediction about that proved to be wrong. The, the others all quit at once and endorsed um uh Biden more or less. Warren, I guess didn't endorse anybody, but the rest of the ones who quit all endorsed Biden. And and so um so th- so I think you know Westwell could have gone differently. Yeah I still think it could have gone differently if all the other candidates had kept had stayed in and not all dropped out and endorsed Biden. But uh that being said, in terms of what's gonna going forward, I don't think this is going to be a serious problem for Biden because what I think is going to happen now um, and I, I think we're seeing evidence of it today already with Biden's announcement about education policy, is that Biden's gonna try hard to get um, Warren and Sanders on board. And I think the main bargaining chip that um, Biden has to bring them on board is to change policies to conform to their, their policies. And then I think once 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 he's done that, and I, I think he's already started doing that, um, I think that actually makes it easier for Sanders and Warren to, you know, really actually turn their own voters towards voting for Biden, towards accepting Biden, because if Sanders is able to go out on the campaign trail now, you know, some people said he only did this in a half-hearted way for Hillary Clinton in 16, but if, but if he does it in a more wholehearted way and goes out on the campaign trail and says, look, you know, if you were voting for me, because you wanted my education policies well Biden has adopted my education policies because I, I was in this race and you voted for me so now you should vote for him you know and I, th- I think Sanders and Warren will make those kinds of arguments and they'll they'll be able to bring their own voters back you know it doesn't look that way today because I think a lot of their their their, their, their supporters are in that first stage of grief you know denial and then, <laughs> and then anger you know but I, I think that that's going to blow over and we'll get to reconciliation within a couple weeks I think.
0: You know, that was the kind of the last question I was going to ask, and you started to uh, to hint an answer there, and that was, do you think that Sanders' response in the wake of pulling out to Biden will look different than it will with Clinton? Uh, Because I, I, I would agree with you, I think that he was very hesitant to support and push forward Clinton. Uh, in a big way and understandably so Uh, that's not a that's not a shot at sanders uh do you think that that was more a clinton issue or do you think that was more a um a position a, a position in the party issue
1: yeah i think it was both but i think they both both you'd get to opposite resolution this time because two things were i think um Sanders really had very genuine qualms about Hillary Clinton I think that made it hard for him to wholeheartedly support her but also I think Sanders knew in 16 that he was running again in 20 um so I think there was also kind of a um you know it, it was it was in his own um truthfully in his own self interest, um, for Hillary not to win. Because if she won, then he's not running again in twenty twenty. And uh um and meanwhile and meanwhile he could start this uh he could start the process of campaigning for twenty twenty, which he more or less did the day after election day in sixteen. But I but but I actually think that's different now. I, I don't think that Sanders can run um in in twenty twenty four. I think for one thing, I do think a Democrat's more likely to get elected in 2020 and Biden is more likely than Trump to get elected in 2020 and even if not you know and that I could easily be wrong about but even if not how old is Sanders going to be by 2024 I think you know at this point his legacy is going to have to be in whether he can get his policies accepted and not in, not in terms of whether he's setting himself up for another run four years from now
0: well I mean if we look at the legacy not to take too big of a shot at him uh, he has not been particularly successful at at that uh, historically but We'll have to wait and see what well, not, happens. Not,
1: not, not, in, not in the Senate, but I think he was successful in 16 at pushing Clinton to the left on a number of issues. And I think he's going to be quite successful now in pushing Biden to the left on a number of issues.
0: Well, let's turn our attention a little bit to, I think, something else that took, it kind of ma- married politics and COVID, and that was the Wisconsin primary. And <clears throat> heavens, there been some strong views on this. Uh, But the the short version of this is, is that the Wisconsin um, state legislature and the governor moved forward with having uh, elections, despite the fact that there is a pandemic going on. And then in the wake of that, there has been a lot. uh, There was the issue and that was what is sued on and brought forward the issue of the absentee ballots. Now, normally what would have to happen in Wisconsin is, is that the ballots would have to arrive, uh, I'm, which day? Arri- arrive by election, by election day. day. Yeah. We'd have to arrive by election day. Um, but it was ruled that it could be then pushed back to April 13th. And this is actually going to head all the way to the Supreme Court. And a couple of weeks ago, we were actually talking about this kind of decision and I know you have some strong feelings on this one, Ken. So I don't want to—I don't want to take too much out yeah. of the air here and just kind of let you get going, and then we can uh, chat about it. Uh, but uh, you know, the Supreme Court's decision has been praised and hammered on both sides, uh, and I would love your take on the Supreme Court's decision on the Wisconsin primary.
1: Okay, I have not actually heard any praise of it, but I guess I don't hear all the same sources that, that you hear. But I uh, um, <laughs> no, I I see I've I've seen a lot of criticism of it as as perhaps the worst decision in the history of the Supreme Court, or the, the worst decision since the Dred Scott decision, or you know yes. perhaps more moderately the the, fir- the first since Bush versus Gore, but uh the worst since Bush versus Gore. But I, I think you know what what happened here uh, is that the 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 governor um, was trying to get the legislature to postpone the uh, primary, which is what happened in almost every other state, um, because there's a public health emergency and it's not safe for people in large numbers to turn out to polling places. and the, And the danger is compounded by the fact that a lot of poll workers wouldn't work. You know, a lot of poll workers said, "I'm not going to go risk my life and do." This. So it was almost impossible to keep uh, a lot of polling places open, particularly in urban areas. And so the, the governor um, uh, went to the legislature and, and said, we, we need to postpone the election. That's what you're normally seeing in every other state. Now, the legislature here in, in Wisconsin said, uh, Well, no, because the urban, it'll be harder for urban people to vote than for rural people to vote. And the Republicans had the rural vote, and just for those kind of purely partisan reasons, they wouldn't postpone the election, even in the even in the face of this public health emergency. So because of the denial of the right to vote, that that was going to systematically and predictably cause, particularly to voters in Milwaukee, where I think there's usually about 160 polling places, and they can only get five of them open. So all of the people in Milwaukee had only five polling places they could actually go to and so it was impossible for most of them to vote they have to stand online all day long crowded in with you know a bunch of strangers uh when there's a coronavirus emergency and that was the you know not not only the um foreseeable result um but actually the intentional result that was that was the reason that the legislature wouldn't extend the voting, is that they wanted to just make it so hard for people in Milwaukee to cast votes. And so a federal district judge, and also the US Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, which is in Chicago, um, ruled that it would be reasonable to let everybody vote absentee as long as they voted by election day, and then to give six days after election day for the mailed in ballots to come in. So there still had to be a postmark by election day. Nobody could vote later than election day. But the federal district judge ordered um, just that the Board of Elections should wait a few days for the election day absentee ballots to come in and then count them. And the the U.S. Supreme Court, in a decision that cited not a single statute, not a single case, not a single law, not a single specific provision of the U.S. Constitution, um, and that wasn't signed by any justice by name, no justice put their name on this decision, uh, wrote a decision just saying no. The, the 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 ordinarily we don't change election laws uh, right right before an election and uh, you know no reason here to depart from the ordinary rule um, just completely ignoring the massive public health emergency and the, and the very moderate nature of the departure from the ordinary rule so um, I I think that was the an election was actually stolen I think that democracy did not exist in in Wisconsin statewide election and that in particular although it was only primarily a primary election uh there was a, a a Wisconsin Supreme Court um contested election one of the republican justices um of the republican supreme court was up for re-election and by successfully suppressing the Milwaukee vote to an extraordinary extent um that seat was stolen there wasn't there wasn't a fair
0: uh, election so here's my question about this and mine is this is so Effectively, what everyone uh, on the left is complaining about here is that the Supreme Court wouldn't overrule what the state legislature decided to do. So, I mean, on, on what legal basis can the Supreme Court decide, well, look, it's a, pan- it's a pandemic, ergo, we now can uh, modify the Constitution to the point where we can interfere with your primary election.
1: No, nobody overruled what the state legislature did. The the election day stayed the same. the The only thing that um, that was done by the um, governor's order, and the and the 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 federal district court and the federal appeals court agreed that this was legitimate under the under the statute as it existed. Um, election day was um, uh, not changed. The only thing that was changed was that uh, absentee ballot. people who actually voted, but yeah, they still had to vote it by election day. Um, the, the legislation didn't, um, didn't uh, um, exclude that possibility. The legislation set, set an election day and set a process um, for having absentee ballots. But it's, it's just the administrative regulations um, in the state that dictate um, things like, uh, um, you know, as long as the election day isn't changed, whether you judge that by whether uh, when the vote is cast or by um, when the vote that was cast is received the 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 statute i don't think got down into that level of detail and also the uh um the 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 lower courts had found that other statutory authorities um and this is like what you saw in Ohio for instance when our governor canceled uh or postponed our election a little bit in advance of when the legislature did it. That the, the 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 there's other statutes besides the election statutes. So there's other statutes that the legislature also enacted that deal with public health emergencies and that give the governor um, emergency powers to um, prevent people from um, congregating um, uh, in in groups of a certain size and things like that um, in the face of a public health emergency. But that's not pandemic. what happened in Wisconsin, so, though.
0: I mean, the, the governor did not. Implement any. I mean, he did not attempt to do any power in the way that Ohio did. Wouldn't that be that? would it
1: well, he did because he he said to not congregate at the polling places, but instead to um to to to, to mail in the ballots. So that that was for public health reason. And the date that they had to be mailed in was still the same date. He didn't change the date either.
0: No, I was saying was you were been in the case of Ohio. That was actually the governor making a decision to. End an election, whereas in the case uh at post, excuse me, not end, but postpone an yeah. election. And in, in this particular case, you have a head of governor who is uh, changing whether not the election, but rather the method by which one could cast a ballot. Yes, yeah, the,
1: yeah. Me, the method, right, right, exactly, right. But but that's because um, again, it is responsive to the public health pandemic. It's it's a public health order that he has statutory authority under the public health statutes to make because he because the polling place would be a place that it would be unsafe for that many people to gather so under his under his public health authority that allows him to um uh to 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 order people not to gather in those kinds of places um he 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 was therefore providing an alternate way that people could vote um so it's not you know it it's it certainly you could certainly argue that it's 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 a it's a little that the governor i i get your argument that he's looking for wiggle room to interpret a statute the way nobody interpreted it before um and that this and 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 that's right um but i think that the the way he was interpreting the statute was reasonable um and that the and that it would have preserved people's right to vote as best as possible um and that the um that the the, the courts in, in Wisconsin and then the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals in Chicago found that that was the best way to reconcile all of the statutes that came to bear on this issue, as well as the right to vote, um, which is, um, you know, I mean, the right to vote is a weird one in the Constitution because there's no specific right to vote in the Constitution. Right, no. But there's but but there 's rights um, not to be discriminated against on the basis of of race or sex or poverty or age over eighteen. Um, all of those are in the Constitution with respect to voting rights um, and so here I think to the extent that Milwaukee um, you know you could i mean you often have these arguments what, what did the did the Republicans not want the Milwaukeeans to vote because their Milwaukeans are likely to be Democrats or do they not want them to vote because they 're African American um, but those, those are overlapping sets, and there was a lot of disenfranchisement of African-Americans here, and that, that is um, unconstitutional under the 15th Amendment. So, so that has to be also brought to bear in figuring out what the law really requires.
0: But see, again, I mean, I, I, I don't disagree on the front that you could have, uh, that Wisconsin could have done what Ohio did and said, look, we're going to delay uh, the election, we're going to postpone the election. Uh, and I, I further don't think that you have to um, you don't have to think it's a good idea. I mean, the idea that you're going to continue forward with it anyway uh, might be a bad idea. What I don't un- what, what what I guess maybe we were, we were a parting company is in the sense that uh, we, we want courts to effectively um, under you know a crisis cons- uh, consideration. Uh, think that they should have a greater role to play in in the state pol in, in the in the state's managing of itself uh and i mean the speculation on you know why does why do you want to do it one way versus another I, I i don't i don't think that particularly matters i mean
1: well under the constitution it matters if the reason that the Republican uh, legislature in Wisconsin wouldn't let Milwaukeeans vote was because Milwaukeeans are African-American voters, then that is unconstitutional. Well, they weren't not letting them vote. They were
0: were making them do something that was potentially a a potential health hazard.
1: Right. But it was for the purpose of not letting them vote. I don't don't even think there was any other purpose even offered. I mean, I think I I think the the, the I never heard the Republicans say a single reason why um they 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 wouldn't uh, allow the the ballots to be counted that were postmarked um uh, on election day um other than that um they thought it would give them a partisan advantage to not count those they didn't they didn't offer any any other kinds of reasons and and again when you, talk why about the you have offer intervening the reason? or to intervening, well because i i don't think they've rebutted the the what seems to be the natural and obvious consequence of what they did which is that this was uh, um disenfranchising voters based on race I mean that that's what the, that's the and that's certainly the principal effect, and it seems to me like it, it, you could presume from the fact that it's the principal effect that it was actually the intended purpose. And if it wasn't the intended purpose, then what was the intended purpose?
0: So uh, undergoing the normal rules of law, if it's if it's discriminatory, and I'm I'm not I don't think I quite follow you, Ken. Yeah, say okay. that one more time.
1: Um, first. Okay, so the 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 when we talk about the normal rules of law, that has to also include the public health emergency laws. those are part of the laws also, right So that the, there's things that um, there's powers that governors get under a public health emergency um, that that they wouldn't have if it wasn't a public health emergency. And so that's part of the ordinary statutory law of the state. Um, and so when the governor here, Says, well, we can't have the in-person elections because of the public health emergency, and we need to let everybody mail in their ballots so they don't have to come to a polling place. And since we we're announcing this relatively late, um, some of these ballots, if we mail them, in, if they mail them in now, they won't be received until after election day. Um, they have to be able to be accepted as long as they're postmarked by election day and then received within five or six days after election day. And that that's what the governor, he gave that order under his own emergency powers um, as part of the public health emergency. Now there was a dispute about whether that was within his powers or not, um, and that was resolved first in the federal district court and then in the, in the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. And they all agreed. That that was within the governor's emergency powers. That the go- governor acted legally within the scope of his authority, and and the 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 Republicans, the legislature kept taking that all the way up. It was actually the Republican National Committee that took it all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, um, really just the day before the election. So at this point, if if the Supreme Court reversed all of the lower court rulings, which is what they did, um, then. Uh, they were interfering in in the election in a very major way um, uh, because they're changing the rules literally the night before the election after all the lower courts hadn 't done that um, and 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 so part of a, a typical constitutional case if there 's an equal protection case um, typically if a if a, if the government does something that has a racially disparate impact um, that does shift the burden of of persuasion to the government to explain um well, what, what, was the, what was the legitimate governmental purpose here? Why, why are you doing something that's adversely affecting members of one race? And in an ordinary equal protection case, the, that would put shift a burden of proof onto the government to explain a purpose that's a non-discriminatory purpose. And, and I'm, I'm saying that wasn't done here, that, that there never was any non-discriminatory purpose offered.
0: Well, so it, 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 on two points there. So one, the Supreme Court ought not to have ruled because it didn't have enough time to rule Ergo, it should have upheld the lower court, whether it agreed with it or not. Seems like that makes the Supreme Court kind of a pointless. I mean, I, I wouldn't ever hear you make that kind of argument in another case. I mean, so because it because of the timing of uh, how your case comes forward, uh, the Supreme Court should just simply defer to the lower court regardless. And then on the, uh, on, the on the on the on the second point. So I, I hear that many people disagree with the way that the Supreme Court, um, as you were is right for putting it and deciding how it's going to rule and, and the way in which it ruled. But that's what the Supreme Court does. Uh, it, it, and so I, what, I, what I don't understand is the idea that the, so the Supreme Court didn't follow the rule that you, that you thought it ought, but that's what makes the Supreme Court the Supreme Court. They get to define the rule. It's their own rule.
1: No, that's not even right. Um, they didn't. There was no federal issue in the case other than the equal protection issue, right? So all the other issues in the case are issues of Wisconsin law, which the Supreme Court has no jurisdiction to decide, right? So so whatever they think about whether the Wisconsin law was applied properly or not, that's something the Supreme Court lacks jurisdiction to get into, and, and, they, and they didn't even claim to be getting into that. Um, so that's the other mysterious part of the case, is that they, seemingly the only federal issue that could get this thing into federal court is that 15th Amendment issue, um, and there, I think the 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 there's it's it's an open and shut case. Uh, I think on the Fifteenth Amendment issue that what the what the um, what the Republican National Committee was arguing for would um, would have the effect of um, disenfranchising most of the African American voters, really in the whole state, I believe, and uh, um, and that there was no legitimate purpose offered for that. And the other issues you're getting to about Wisconsin law, that's just not the Supreme Court's business. And, and, they, and they don't mention any of that. And they, they really mention no laws in the opinion.
0: No, it's relative. It's a short, a short opinion.
1: Yeah, that cites no law whatsoever.
0: True. Yeah, very true.
1: Yeah. And and, and and it just uh, says it says things like this court has repeatedly emphasized that lower federal courts should not ordinarily alter the election rules on the eve of an election. Well, what, I mean, what law? First of all, the lower federal court didn't alter it. It was the governor that altered it. And the lower federal court approved that. But mm-hmm. the second, you know, what 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 law says that? I mean, that's the that's actually the opposite of what you were arguing a second ago. Right. You were arguing the courts should go ahead and uh, change the rules right before an election if, if that's what's called but the supreme court in this opinion says that they shouldn't
0: so in fact your argument here is effectively that they are doing the very thing that they ought not to do by the standard by which they are ruling it
1: yeah their whole justification for saying that uh that they needed to reverse these lower courts is they're saying well the lower courts are changing the rules of the election too close to the election um but all the lower courts did was permit the governor to do that. They didn't. The courts themselves didn't do that. And the Supreme Court actually did do that. The Supreme Court changed the rule the night before the election. Okay, I, I can. not I, the I, they... <laughs> I can. I can.
0: Now that part of the argument, I can. I I hear and I and I can. Uh, I have sympathy with. Um, I still think that the fundamental problem, though, lies at the state level, where you have a series of legislatures and uh, governors who are not addressing these issues in a timely manner and they don't have uh they don't really have they don't really have the kind of statutory authority that they would like to have to solve these kinds of crises i think in large part because they wouldn't be popular with um Their electorate, and so I agree with your drawing the analogy to Ohio, but I would suggest Ohio is having been a more successful version of it, Uh, and I I think a lot of the ire that is directed at the Supreme Court is probably more rightfully directed uh, at the at the at the state legislature and at the governor of Wisconsin.
1: Well, but the state legislature succeeded in ending democracy in Wisconsin. I mean, that 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 they they really they deserve the ire, but also a court should stop them from doing that. Right. I mean, if they if they can just say, well, we're going to make sure that voters who vote for us have a better chance of being able to vote than voters who would vote against us, um, then you really don't have democracy in that state anymore.
0: But I mean, that is precisely what state legislatures mean. I mean, this is a broader question that we can we can discuss mean, state legislatures do that all the time. I mean, as a matter of fact, the ability to to create districts to favor particular candidates over gerrymandering, as it is, um, which again is why I suggest that I, I think that, that the real outlet for those is at the at the state le- uh, the state the state level and uh, the the people that you elect. And you're right. I mean, depending on who you elect for state legislatures. Uh, that determines not only how elections for uh, local office are going to be, it's also going to determine how how national offices are going to be, and those are elected positions. I mean, yeah, but the people can't vote in
1: Wisconsin. The people have been dis- even before this election was was canceled uh, um, the other day. It's already the case right now that the majority of people in Wisconsin have voted for Democrats in governor and in both houses of their legislature the majority of voters there should be an all democratic government in Wisconsin if 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 the if the voters had the ability to vote republicans out of office simply by casting more votes against them than for them but that's not how it works in Wisconsin they have a very extreme gerrymander and now they've married it to a very extreme form of um uh vote suppression of voters who live in the cities and and so there it's not actually possible through ordinary democratic means in Wisconsin For the for the large majority of I think the large majority of voters now who are Democrats to actually get control of their own government.
0: Well, no, I mean, in in that case, I, I, I don't disagree with you, but that is the legacy of have allowing state legislatures to determine the rules for elections. I mean, when you elect state legislatures. You are not only electing who's going to control it, but you are leaving fingerprints for years to come over how elections will be conducted. So, I mean, on that front, I don't disagree with you um, even a little bit, I, I, what I hear, but maybe where we have the difference is to suggest that you don't think that um, state legislature you, you think that courts ought to have the decision about how that audit, to- I'm not sure, right? we haven't chatted about that on this show before. Uh, you know where where that power ought to lie. Uh, so I don't disagree with you, and and I'm fundamentally I think that uh, Wisconsin should have done something more uh, akin to Ohio. Personally, um, so I think I think where we might have a disagreement. It sounds like the biggest is is just what should state legislatures be allowed to do or not allowed to do when it comes to election policy. Yes.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, the question of what role courts should play is complicated. I think yeah. <laughs> because yeah, I mean, here here I'm I'm actually the one criticizing what the Supreme Court did, and yes. uh, and and yeah, and 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 you're the one saying courts should stay out of this. So we're actually on the same side on that issue, I guess. So, um, but I, I I think that. Um, yeah, what the Supreme Court did here was they intervened in an extraordinarily anti-democratic way to to make sure but man, both capital D and small D democratic that they the process yeah, of
0: democracy yes yeah exactly smaller, smaller but, case. But, also,
1: but also but also the partisan uh, partisan the party right I mean I think the Supreme Court intervened to say that no matter how people vote in this election the the Republican candidate gets to win the Supreme Court rate the Wisconsin Supreme Court Court race and no matter what it doesn't matter how people vote um and so in that sense they they um i think they're anti-democratic in the small d sense and anti-democratic in the big <laughs> D both. It's, yeah it's, i think it's a completely um uh, illegitimate
0: role for the supreme court to take well let's move because we're, we're uh quickly running out of time for this show uh i'd like to move to something where i think we might have even have a lot of agreement uh, and that okay. is this week we had uh the firing of uh michael atkinson and um uh, ken i'm having a glenn moment. Fine yes glenn fine <laughs> glenn fine yes uh who uh, in both of these cases we have um ig individuals and the big deal in the case of glenn fine of course is this is the individual who is supposed to oversee uh the money in the recently passed cares act now and then in the case of michael uh, atkinson this really appears to kind of be a A get back from President Trump, I'd say, uh, for having for the for the way that he handled the whistleblower complaint. Now, this week, part of the big news about these firings, though, is that we have uh, some rare bipartisanness happening in the Senate with senators from both parties demanding that the president uh, give some additional reasoning and stating that what he had already said, quote, was not sufficient, end quote. And that's a pretty big deal. And now Trump has called both of both of these individuals total disgraces. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, all I mean, the, the, the best read I have on this, skin isn't long. So maybe that goes well for a last story, which is effectively uh, Trump hated these guys and he wanted them out. and Now they're gone. Uh, I mean, am, am I missing any potential nuance there? <laughs> what do you
1: think? Yeah, I mean, no. I think that pretty much summarizes it. But the one, the other part of it, I'd say maybe that didn't get encapsulated in what you just said. You know, in the case of Atkinson, I think that's right. He hated Atkinson because Atkinson actually he is the person who told Congress about the whistleblower complaint on Ukraine. Now, in in the case of Fine, I think the story's slightly different. I don't think Trump has any reason to hate Fine whatsoever. I don't think he even knew who Fine was. I I think the whole story there is just he doesn't want any oversight of the way he's going to spend um the 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 half billion dollar uh I'm sorry half half trillion dollar yeah i was to say it's more of, than there's a 2 <laughs> trillion dollar stimulus yeah great right. so there's a 2 trillion dollar <laughs> stimulus bill but half a trillion of that one quarter of the stimulus bill is essentially a slush fund and uh um and and the the democrats had agreed to to that part of it um in part because it was um there's a lot of oversight provisions where there's going to be inspector general reporting all the time on how that slush fund is being spent. And so there, I don't think it's that Trump had anything against Fine in particular. I think it's against the idea of oversight over his use of the slush fund, you know, really that anybody would do it other than someone who's already a Trump loyalist.
0: Yeah. And see, in this, you know, last well, not last week, but the week before last, I think when we were talking and I, uh, I was actually on the show, I was the third wheel. Um and, and we were we were chatting about the CARES Act, we were chatting about the the, the, the fiscal policy. And I, I think this is an example of I, I was probably the least supportive of the way that it went out um of the uh of the hosts. And I <laughs> It it continues to worry me that Congress relies on these kinds of mechanisms to be the check, as opposed to being the check on the president. Uh, And and again, it's kind of all fun and games until you have a president who will do things that are that are sleazy. And uh, I I know this uh, draws me some ire from some, but you know, President Trump he does sleazy stuff, and I think he makes a really good case for those like me who say, look, this is why you don't want to have so much power vested. In a particular individual, and, and be relying on you know good indiv- good human beings. This is not a, a take at any of the uh, in any particular IG, but just I don't think that's the best way for Congress to to have oversight. I mean, does th- does that worry you too, or am, am I out on that limb by myself? Yeah,
1: no, no. I'm 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 I'm. See, I agree with the general ideas that you just stated. The only thing that I would say is I, I do think there was a um, very urgent need to take fast action. Um, you know, at the time that the, the CARES Act was being, um, uh, enacted, and so you know if you have a um you need to get to a bipartisan agreement um, in order to pass something um it it really does slow things down if you say we've got to get to a bipartisan agreement on all the different spending items um I think that you know the the, the, the idea that they could say, well let's get to a bipartisan agreement on the major points, and then you know on on three quarters of this two trillion dollar spending bill we'll get to an agreement on what were some of the things that needs to be spent on. And on the last quarter of it, we'll just um, have a slush fund so that, you know, on the fly, people will be able to figure out where the money is could be best spent. And we'll have a lot of oversight. I, I think that's that's a second best solution. But, it, but we're in a kind of second best situation. And, you know, a better solution would be that Congress should appropriate the money. To what Congress thinks it should be appropriated for, um, but that that really would slow things down a lot, especially when you have a, a you need to get a two party agreement on something. So I don't think it was terrible to do what Congress did. Of course, I think it would have been better if they would have uh, appropriated with more specificity. And I, I do think, um, and maybe this is part of it, you, you mentioned how now there's a bipartisan uh, agreement in Congress that they want more explanation from Trump about why he fired these inspectors mm-hmm. general. I think it, 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 made, it, made, it made McConnell's job a hell of a lot harder going forward that, 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 that Trump did this because McConnell still needs the Democrats back at the table to do all these next rounds of the stimulus bill. And, and so for instance, we had seen where there'd been an agreement in principle yesterday or the day before about how to do the, yeah, on, on the small business stuff, right? And so I think both Democrats and Republicans are, have had have, have bipartisan agreement in Congress that if you've got small businesses that are closed up now and not making revenues and they're, they're able to still keep paying the salaries of their employees, they should be able to get some some money to help them through this. Um, and so if you, could, if you have a bipartisan agreement on that, Then if you can also trust that the money will be um, not uh, expropriated corruptly for cronies of the president, but instead will actually be um, uh, delegated out on an open, transparent and fair formula. Um, then you'd have bipartisan agreement to go ahead with that. But if the Democrats start saying, well, once we appropriate this money, um, none of the oversight mechanisms are going to be honored, and all we've done is given Trump another quarter of a trillion dollars to reward his cronies and, and supporters and, and political donors, and and, and none of it will go to Democrats, um, then Democrats really, you know, how can they support a bill like that? So I think it it, it, it smashes up a lot of the bipartisanship um, for, for for Trump to destroy the oversight mechanisms.
0: No, and, you know, on none of those fronts do I disagree. The only bit that I'd add here as as we kind of finish up is just simply that I, I hear what you say about, you know, when do we have time? And, and, and sometimes you have to make those things work in Congress. But what I fear happens is, is, that, be, is that one quick and seemingly necessary decision after another ends up leading to a, a series of, of actions by Congress that, disproportionately puts power in the hand of the president versus congress and and maybe that's part of the fundamental maybe there maybe there's a flaw in the fact that if if you're always legislating in those moments for expediency which you kind of have to you're always going to be biasing the president yeah you know, something else we you could think about but um Yeah, not nothing that we can solve.
1: (laughs) i just say one more thing about that, though. I think, you know, a lot of people a lot of people were critical of the bailouts in 2008 and 2009 that gave rise to the whole Tea Party movement and everything. But I think, um, you know, even though occasionally. Republicans would complain about um, things like the Department of Energy gave money to Solyndra and Solyndra donated money to Democrats you know you find a few examples like that but but by and large um, you know the 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 trans the oversight mechanisms in the 2008 bailout were transparent and effective and you know given how much money was involved in those bailout bills um, it was it was pretty well accounted for it was pretty hard even for the most partisan Republicans to come up with more than a handful of examples Examples That they could point to and say there was something shady here. There was something shady.
0: there. And I don't really think and, and, that was the fundamental issue of the Tea Party. It was just the spending of that amount of money that amount in the right, economy right. period. Right. So it wasn't it wasn't, a, it wasn't a, a claim of being, um, you know, a slush fund right. in that sense.
1: Right. That, that's what I'm trying to get at is that I think that that was a prior emergency where because there was proper oversight mechanism in place and because the president both presidents actually because it started under WW uh, G- yep and
0: then continued
1: and, and then continued into Obama both presidents were willing to um, submit to that proper oversight that it was it was surprisingly clean I think how, how how those programs were run given the large amount of money involved and the potential for some of it to be siphoned off into slush funds and Corruption and things like that. I really don't think that happened, um, and yet Trump seems to, um, you know, be completely opposed to following that kind of precedent now. So I don't think it can never work. I think it did work in in 2008 and 2009 um, that there was an emergency, there was a need for a fast response, there were oversight mechanisms put in place, and they. They mostly ensured that the money got to mostly the right places and it's never going to be perfect. But but I think, uh, um, you know, here we're really, you know, Trump's really kind of laid down a gauntlet and said he doesn't even want to accept the idea that uh, that, that this this whole um, that the part of the part of the, um, the the CARES Act that hasn't been specifically earmarked is anything other than a slush fund that he can give to who he wants to.
0: Yeah. And uh, and, and that in and of itself is a, is a dangerous precedent precedent as it moves forward. Well, Ken, it has been wonderful doing the show with you, and, and it always is. I, I appreciate it whether we agree, which is often or sometimes, we disagree as well. Great. Thank you. I would also like to say, I just want to thank everybody who's listening. If you're listening right now, thank you so much for listening to Politics, guys. And it really is a lot of fun doing this. Uh, it's been a long and stressful week for, uh, for many of us who are working in uh, education. I know this week was particularly stressful for myself, uh, but doing this show is always kind of a highlight and a, and, and a positive point of the week for me uh, and having and had the time to do it. And if you want to kind of give back to us, if you want to help us in this, uh, the way you do that really is by subscribing to the Politics Guys on the podcast app of your choice. That incredibly helps. And, and additionally, so does sharing say, this episode on Twitter or on uh, Instagram or whatever uh, social media platform you use, especially right now. We have so many uh, individuals looking for new content uh, as we're all uh, cooped up. I also want to say uh, I would like to suggest that you know this week we don't have any, um, we don't have any ads, and uh, that's because of some really incredible supporters like you. And so I would also like to mention, I know we've got a lot of new supporters And even if you can't afford to be a supporter, I want you to know that you're going to have the opportunity during the crisis uh, to do that. All you have to do is to email uh, mikeatpoliticsguys.com, and you too will be able to get some of the really cool supporter-only content. And one of the great items that you get as being a supporter uh, is what Ken and I will be doing in just a few moments, uh, and that is creating our full-length supporters-only Wednesday show. We're going to be taking on questions, getting to some stories we didn't get into uh, during the week. Uh, and so if you want to become a supporter, if you have the ability to do that, that's another great way you can help the show. And you can check more out about becoming a supporter uh, by heading uh, to the Politics Guys Patreon page, which is at patreon.com politicsguys. Or you can go straight to our webpage, politicsguys.com support. So join me and again on Wednesday by heading to patreon.com slash politicsguys. If you've got questions, if you'd like to be on a future show, comment, correction, or just some random thought you'd like to share, you can always reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. We also strive for civil and rational debate on our subreddit, Bipartisan Politics. And you can always find us on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Morano, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Chris Wilkerson. Today's show was produced by me, Trey Orndorf. We'll be back with a new show for supporters on Wednesday. Hope you'll join us then. <laughs>